You caught me just as I was about to commence the annual burning of the festive holiday decorations. I look forward to this all year long. Before we begin, first allow me to welcome you back to the Gallery of Curiosities. I am, as always, your humble host, Osgood. Now, as to the burning of the decorations, it's really quite simple. I merely have my editor, Kevin, drag all of the accumulated decorations, be they glittering stars, twinkling lights, day-glow snowmen, or a tiny reindeer, and pile them up on the sidewalk and set them all ablaze. It's really quite a spectacle. I toast marshmallows whilst the neighbors throw stones. It's a necessary ritual at this time of the year, representing out with the old and in with the new. It is a time to consider new perspectives, which reminds me of this evening's story about a charming lad who is led to consider a new perspective. This story is by Frederick Obermeyer. Mr. Obermeyer lives in Cooperstown, New York. He enjoys writing science fiction, fantasy, horror, and crime stories. He has had stories published in NFG, Electric Spec, New Myths, Perihelion SF, Acidic Fiction, Manor House, The Destination, Future Anthology, and other markets. In addition, he's a member of the Critters Writers Workshop. It will be read for us this evening by Mr. Wilson Fowley. A Man Named Time by Frederick Obermeyer Narrated by Wilson Fowley I will never forget the night I met John Time. Had fate not intervened, I suspect that I would have slipped past his dwelling and never lived to write this account. That winter in the city was particularly bleak, and like some kind of urban derelict, I spent many a day plodding down the streets, seeking sustenance and warmth, but finding neither. Day labor would have been a salvation for my plight. Alas, I lacked the stamina to keep up with such grueling manual labor. Job after job ejected me from their premises with a brusqueness that was disparaging, to say the least. Lest the reader further think that I could have returned home, allow me to disabuse you of such a notion. My parents did not approve of my sordid lifestyle or the company that I kept. Unable to find any common ground with them, they subsequently ejected me from their home one morning with undue force. Bitterly, I still recall my mother on the street as I fled, clutching her brown leather-bound Bible and swearing me to eternal damnation for my sinful and unrepentant ways. With my sole refuge gone and my pockets bereft of money, I became an unwilling mendicant, 
trapped in a seemingly endless, vicious cycle of living hand to mouth. Yet even that sorry existence did not sustain me through those dreadful times. And so crime became the last refuge of my misbegotten life. In the common parlance, which I still try so desperately to hide from my public writings via an ornate lexicon and turgid circumlocutions, I rolled drunks and robbed wealthy citizens at gunpoint. If they failed to surrender their riches, I beat them savagely. Yet the money did not last, nor did my luck. At the scene of my latest robbery, the police arrived with terrifying swiftness, their whistles blaring. Afraid that I would be detained and subjected to a pat-down, I quickly tossed my revolver and three stolen wallets down the nearest sewer grate and fled the area. By sheer chance, I managed to evade the authorities at the next block by ducking under an oncoming junk wagon as it passed. I hung onto its underside for several blocks, then let go and rolled into a snowdrift once the conveyance had passed. When I peered out, the policemen were thankfully nowhere to be found. Alas, my clothing was manufactured from cheap wool and afforded little protection from the bitter chill. Soaked through, the cold only grew more biting. I returned to my feet and dusted the snow off my coat and flat cap. Having foolishly discarded my only source of revenue, I could not afford a hotel room or even the luxury of a basement cot. Darkness quickly descended upon the city, and a wretched winter storm followed, its winds howling mercilessly. That brutal night, the city quickly grew deserted. All of the homeless shelters were filled up and the churches closed. The streets and skies were quiet, save for the occasional passage of a horse and carriage, and a lone atomic zeppelin drifting high above me through the snow, its lights illuminating the monolithic skyscrapers where captains of industry slept snugly. I stumbled half-blind and shivering into the poorest area of the city. A white sheen covered the dilapidated edifices, and yellow everlight glistened from the street lamps, harvested from the glowing tears of transient angels. Frozen to my bones, I collapsed in front of a tenement. As I lay there in the snow, I closed my eyes and waited for death to take me. What are you doing out here, boy? A soft, urbane voice said. Come inside before you catch your death. Unknowingly saved from my snowbound stupor, I looked up into the eyes of the immortal man. His body seemed to glow in the light of the nearby lamp. An angel, perchance? Nay, angels do not walk the earth with such a heavy tread. How can one describe such a moment without falling back on hagiography or the standard pathetic platitudes? In stature, time was a most unprepossessing man. Fair of skin, he had hair that carried the golden sheen of newly harvested flax. However, his plain dress greatly complemented his innate pulchritude. Some might say that his brown fedora and trench coat looked shabby, but John Time was not one to dress in so pretentious a manner. Come along, boy, Time said. He hoisted me to my feet, dusted the snow off my coat, and led me inside his home. 
At this point, the memory fades like the golden light at magic hour. The next clear recollection that I have is being in his apartment. While I was unconscious, he had stripped my sodden clothes, wrapped me in blankets, and deposited me in front of a roaring fireplace. Many raconteurs have dreamed up the most fanciful stories about Time's home. Some have claimed it was filled to the brim with marble statues, dusty clockwork mechanisms, and other otios relics. Still others say that it carried the severed heads and hearts of those whose time he had stolen. How such mendacious rumors are first concocted, I will never truly know. As with his dress, his apartment was Spartan. The green-walled living room had only the chair I was in, a small wooden table next to it, and a wooden coat rack by the door. I wish I could state that I was a most gracious guest to my savior. Unfortunately, that was not the case. Even as my salvation was assured, I looked around the barely furnished room, seeking a means of escape. A door lay to my right. In the adjacent kitchen to my left, a tea kettle whistled. I peered behind the chair and noticed the man lifting up one of the living room floorboards. From beneath the floor, he produced a small tin and slid out a large dollar roll from his coat pocket. He placed the money in the tin, then returned the container to its spot under the floor and slid the floorboard back in place. I faced forward and smiled, realizing an opportunity to avail myself of new funds. My gracious host retreated into the kitchen and came back moments later with a cup of tea and some cinnamon and sugar toast with butter. Here you are, Time said, eat up. Rude as I was, I did not even thank him for the food. Instead, I gobbled the meal down, getting crumbs and spilling tea all over the blankets. You gave me a scare there, my host said. I thought you were dead. I did not respond. I am John Timms, the man said, doffing his hat at me. He hid his true name from me at first with the surname Timms. And you are? I pursed my lips, refusing to surrender my identity. Surely you have a name, boy? Joseph, I said. My innate fear of time forced me into uttering an alias. From the bright twinkle in his eye, I could tell that Time knew I was lying, yet like two vaunted actors of the stage, we kept up the pretense of candor. Very well then, Joseph. Do you have a family member that I can telephone? I remained silent on the matter. A mother, perhaps? Silence continued to be the currency with which I paid my host. A father? Anyone? I finished my tea and dropped the fine ceramic cup on the floor, shattering it. Not a talker then, I see. He removed his fedora and tossed it onto the rack. Even now I warmly recall his plain-spoken manner, a manner which, alas, grievously contradicts the pompous periphrasis of this narrative. My only defense, dear reader, is the embarrassment I still possess at my impoverished low-class origins. Well, you can stay here until the storm clears and your clothes dry, Time said. 
If you wish, I know some people downtown who can set you up with a job and an apartment. I can even loan you some money till you get back on your feet. I remained silent. Perhaps we can talk some more later. Until then, I bid you good night. He nodded and drifted into the next room. The door closed with a faint creak. I sighed. Only the crackling fire filled the silence of the lonely room, the air sweet with the scent of cedar smoke. I glanced back over at the floorboard where the money was hidden. Looking back at my youthful cupidity, I can only shake my head in dismay. Many other citizens would have readily consigned a street urchin such as myself to a frozen grave, yet the great man had taken me into his home and had given me victuals and warmth with no payment asked in return. And all I could do to repay such generosity was to break one of his cups and filch his funds. Despite the obvious opportunity, however, I suspected that it might be some sort of devious trap. I waited for several hours, savoring the fire and watching the snow fall outside through the apartment's lone window. As I did, I waited for the telltale snore of my host. When it finally arrived, I reconnoitered the room until I found my clothing still sodden from my roll into the snowdrift. Despite the impending threat of frostbite, hypothermia, and pneumonia, I slid the damp articles back onto my person and crept over to the fireplace. There, I picked up a large brass poker lying in a rack next to the fireplace and walked towards the room where my host lay slumbering. Lest you think, dear reader, that I was planning on savagely braining my host in return for his generosity, please allow me to disabuse you of such an invidious notion. As I mentioned earlier in my narrative, I feared that a trap lay where the money was kept. To ensure that some fiendish device did not relieve me of several fingers, I carefully raised the board and dipped the poker beneath the floor. No loud metallic snap followed, thus assuring me that I was safe. I reached under the floor, opened the tin, grabbed the roll, and stuffed it into my coat. Flush with sumptuous dreams of hot roast beef and clean sheets, I placed the tin and board back in place and retreated from my host's warm abode. Down the tenement steps I ran and out the door, my heart a flutter with the thrill of such facile thievery. Alas, only moments after I made my escape, the snow froze in mid-fall and a distant zeppelin halted in space. Even the misty white plume of my labored breath hung in the air like an emerging gin trapped in amber. A great vacuum then descended upon the universe, one which I could not have fought even had I possessed the might of Hercules. This great force pulled me back into the tenement, forcing me to retrace all of my steps. My mind was awash in an unfathomable torrent of terror, yet I could not cry for help or break free. I rushed backwards into the apartment, over to the floorboard, and placed the stolen currency back in its hiding place. As soon as the money was returned, the reverse effect of time ceased. Speechless, I remained kneeling next to the space, my body quivering uncontrollably as if with malaria. 
time emerged from the next room and shook his head. I looked up at him, my small frame quivering. He reached under the floor, produced the roll, undid the rubber band holding the money, slid off three of the top bills, and revealed nothing but sheets of rectangular white paper beneath them. I wish you could have been more trustworthy, but I already saw that you wouldn't be. A shame, really. Time dropped the fraudulent and genuine bills at my feet. Occasionally, a sudden unexpected divergence from the established timeline can surprise even me, but these days it is becoming all too rare. The sudden realization of my host's identity filled me with dread. I see you now know who I am. John Time, I said. Yes. I, uh, I, I'm so sorry. No, you're not. I truly doubt that in your present state you could ever be sorry, Joseph. Are, are you going to kill me? I said. No. Given what you have suffered, I cannot wholly blame you for the path you have taken. But now you must stray from that road and find a nobler one. I don't understand. Let me show you something. Times stepped back from me, took off his coat, and unbuttoned his shirt. I tensed, grimly wondering what unspeakable act he was about to commit. But I quickly beheld a sight that, even now, years later, still holds me in its inimitable thrall. When he took off his shirt, I gasped. The skin of his muscular chest and abdomen shone with a golden energy that nearly blinded me in its brilliance. Orange and yellow time cells drifted out of his body like embers rising from a fire. Several of the cells dissipated as they merged with reality, while a few others melted into my flesh and telepathically transmitted the merest scintilla of time's omniscience into my mind. I saw the flash that began our universe. John Time floated alone in the ether. His naked temporal body emerged from nothingness and merged with the infant universe, imbuing it with his organic temporal essence, allowing it to break free from stasis and grow into a past, a present, and a future for mankind and all other living creatures, a history in which all life could be born, evolve, and die. More of his time cells flashed across my field of view, Moments so quick I could not perceive them. Faster and faster they raced, until finally there came the heat death of the universe, the end of everything. And then, the beginning again. A never-ending circle of time which changed ever so slightly with every new iteration. Yet, John Time was the one constant amidst the creation and destruction of all universes. In essence, his body generated every moment of time for every universe in existence. I blinked and flashed back to the small room, his time cells drifting away from me. Time rewound and his clothing slid back over him. I gasped and stumbled back, overwhelmed by my vision of him existing forever. What was I in such a grand scheme? Less than nothing. In that belief, though, I was quite mistaken. I may be trapped in an endless cycle, Joseph, but you are not, Time said, 
he held out his hand. Come, let me reveal what awaits you in the future. I hesitantly grasped his hand and accompanied him into the next room. We appeared in a long, tan hallway like that of an elegant hotel, a structure that blatantly defied the tenement's geometry. Two cherrywood doors lay before me. John opened the first and led me into a room. Beyond the first doorway lay one future. Seeing it, I knew that the crimes of my youth were but mere warm-ups when compared to the inimical nature of my future self. I was standing in the living room of a well-decorated home around the holidays, tying up a family next to the Christmas tree. A husband, a wife, and three young children. Once they were bound and gagged, I poured gasoline on them, stepped back several paces, lit a rolled-up newspaper with a match, and threw it onto the liquid. Flames enveloped their screaming bodies as I picked up a heavy bag full of spoils I had liberated from their domicile and trotted blithely out of the back door. At the edge of the adjacent woods, I gazed upon the burning house, the shadow of the flames flickering across my smiling countenance. More crimes followed. Of them, I can only say that they were so hideous that I cannot bear to vex the reader's imagination through their lurid portrayal. My ignoble end arrived like the end of many such criminals. In my case, several intrepid policemen shot me down as I cowered behind a meatpacking plant. I tumbled into the nearby gutter and dropped the meager prize I had gained from my last heist. My life's blood poured onto a few crumbled dollar bills lying in the gutter next to me and turned them scarlet. Shaken, I turned away. John led me out of that dreadful room and into the other. There lay my other future. A future where I attended Elmsley and Thurnhurst, and rose up out of the ashes of poverty and crime, born anew like the phoenix of old. I worked diligently as a newspaper editor and later an accountant. With the riches gained from my sagacious stock investments, I decided to reimburse the community. I established a youth civic center to help disadvantaged children and created three new homeless shelters. From there, I donated to charities around the world and even worked occasional nights in a soup kitchen. No longer trapped by my life of crime, I was free to help those in dire need. John led me out of the room and back into his apartment living room. Some people have the potential to affect time more greatly than others he said, someone such as yourself. He tapped my right shoulder. I have shown others like you their separate paths. Some have followed the better path, and others, to my everlasting regret, have not. They refused to believe that it would end that way, yet end it did. What do I do? I said. I cannot make the choice for you, Joseph. I can only show you the possibilities and ask that you do not allow the pain that you have endured to destroy what remains of your soul. Standing at the precipice of two lives, I could only gaze into John Time's infinitely weary eyes. Only now, many years later, looking back at the past with more wisdom, can I truly appreciate the gift he had given me. You may stay the night and go in the morning, John said. No matter which path you take, I wish you Godspeed. 
He retrieved his fedora from the rack, doffed it once more, and returned to the adjacent room. Overwhelmed by the events of the night, I stumbled back to the chair and immediately fell asleep. When I awoke the next morning, I found myself in a homeless shelter. Momentarily, I thought that the earlier events had been but a fever dream. Yet, when I reached into my pocket, I discovered a gold pocket watch and a large roll of dollar bills. Unlike the one I had purloined the previous night, this one contained actual currency and was far more munificent than the previous bundle had been. Some might claim that I have been overly quixotic in the recollection of my meeting with John Tyne. Others may state that this account does not contain even the slightest shred of veracity. Nevertheless, I am certain of the truth as surely as I am certain of my own existence. I did meet John Time, and he thusly set me upon the path that I have taken. As you may well have deduced by now, dear reader, I did choose the better path. My education at Elmsley and Thurnhurst followed swiftly with my ascension into the world of professional journalism and finance. As an addendum, I note that I regrettably have only had one other occasion to see Mr. Time. Years later, when I returned to the tenement, the edifice had been raised, and no further trace of time could be found. However, only three weeks ago, on another snowy night, I emerged from my limousine near the townhouse where I currently reside. When I looked across the street, there was John Time standing under an Everlight street lamp, the snowflakes stuck in the air around him, the same golden hair, the same brown fedora and coat. Although the surrounding time had ceased, I could see pride beaming from his ageless visage. I smiled and raised my hand to him. He returned my greeting, then turned and walked down to the next corner past the frozen people. When I blinked again, he was gone. The clock resumed its normal march forward, and I happily strode inside my home, grateful that I had validated his faith in me. Perhaps the reader might say that my meeting with John Time was simply a fabrication of my overzealous imagination. I respectfully beg to differ. On that bitterly cold night many moons ago, John Time not only saved my life, he saved my soul, and for that I will be eternally grateful. You know, a kind stranger once attempted to show me the error of my ways in my youth as well. He showed me a future rather similar to the lad in this evening's story. I ignored him completely, and as you can tell, I turned out just fine. Step on it with those decorations, Kevin. Don't make me fetch the kettle prod. The narrator for this evening's story, Wilson Fowley, has been reading stories out loud since the age of four, and credits his parents for any talent he has for it. He's been narrating for podcasts since he answered a call for readers for Podcastle in 2008. 
Mr. Fowley fits all this narrating in between his day job as a web developer in Vancouver, Canada, and directing a community show chorus called The Maple Leaf Singers. Now, before I light that match, I would be remiss not to thank our patrons, Bookworm, Mimiel, and Scott, for their continuing loyalty. Your generosity kept us going throughout this long, long year. I plan to follow this long year by starting the new year with a long hangover. Gallery of Curiosities is produced under a Creative Commons International 4.0 Non-Commercial Attribution No Derivatives License. Don't sell it, change it, or make a transcript. If you enjoy the show, do tell your friends and give us some stars and reviews. If you don't like it, life is short, go listen to something else already. This evening's story music was Thunder Dreams by Kevin MacLeod. Our theme song, as always, is Ashes Ashes by Deus Ex Vapora Machina. This episode was produced in December of 2017. For full show notes, visit us on the web at gallerycurious.com. All right, Kevin, fetch the marshmallows and a canister of petrol. I want to see this sucker blow.